Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at two verses today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul has been working through, starting in chapter 5, with the various relationships within the church. He started off with the relationship of the congregation to the widows within the congregation. And then he moved on to focus on the elders and how to care for the elders. And in this passage, he focuses in on those who are bond servants, bond slaves, or just to be very simple and clear, slaves who serve their masters. And he has instruction for them. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants or as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to hear your word read and sung and taught. And I pray that you would stir in our hearts a deep confidence, a settled confidence, a resting in the truth that you have revealed to us. Help us to know your word and your way, and help us to live in obedience to it, to be faithful as brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we can live in such a way that would not dishonor the name of God, but lift up and bring glory to God and His name. Lord, we thank You for this time. We pray that You would instruct us. Have Your way with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just in case it wasn't clear from my reading of the text, this passage addresses the relationship of slaves to their masters. And for many of us, this is a difficult passage to read. The mere mention of slavery is enough to put us on edge. The language of those who are under the yoke as slaves, it conveys that these people were being made to endure harsh labor and oppression. They were not free to do as they pleased, but were subject to the will of another. In this case, the, the, the will of the one who owned them as a master. And one of the most pressing questions that comes to mind as we read a passage like this is, why did the Apostle Paul not encourage these slaves to throw off their bondage? Like, why is he telling them to honor their masters? And the truth is, this isn't an easy question to answer. But it does help us to study the broader cultural context of what Paul was writing into. It also is helpful, I think, for us to study the rest of Scripture and to see what it has to say about the subject of slavery and also to remember that throughout history, Christians have been the most ardent opponents of the institution of slavery throughout the world. 
So this morning, we have a lot of work in front of us. We have our work cut out for us and trying to make sense of this passage and to find some modern application so that we can live and work in such a way that the name of God will be honored in the way we do that. So let's look at some things. Let's, let's talk about what the Bible actually teaches on the subject of slavery. I think it's important that we understand that slavery as an institution can be seen throughout the Bible. I think it's also important for us to understand that nowhere in Scripture do we see a universal condemnation of it. However, what we do see in the Scripture, I believe, is a radical departure from the cultural forms of slavery that we can look back to in history and we would all say those things are institutionally wicked. But we do not see in Scripture a verse that condemns slavery altogether. And if I'm honest with you, that bothers me. It bothers me because in in my mind, the predominant view or vision that I have in my mind around the word slavery, it has to do with race-based New World slavery. When I hear the word slave, in my mind, I think of African men and women being abducted and mistreated and transported against their will to a new continent to live a life of horrific oppression, being made to work in sugarcane fields and cotton fields until they die. And I struggle to get those images out of my mind when I read the word slave. And maybe you have the same image in your mind. But I also know enough about the subject to know that ancient Near Eastern slavery is not the same as New World slavery. And yet, I don't want my discomfort to go away. I don't want to intellectualize slavery to the point where I simply accept the fact that slavery isn't all bad. I want that visceral reaction to slavery, to the idea of slavery and the reality of slavery to remain in me. And one of the reasons for that is because slavery is not just a subject that we study from history. Slavery is alive and thriving in our world today. As Christians, we should be doing our part to bring sex trafficking and child trafficking, which are modern forms of slavery. We should be doing our part to bring those institutions to an end because we know that all human beings are made in the image of God and they have an inherent and God-given dignity. But I do want to acknowledge that what we see in the Bible centered around the subject of slavery is a very different type of thing than we see in European colonialism, and in the American South. In fact, we see laws in the Old Testament that God has given to his people that would govern the institutions of slavery. We see that God expected his people to do very different things than what were taking place in the pagan nations of the world. So, the word that Paul uses here is the word doulos in the Greek. And Uh, A lot of modern translations try to soften that term by using the phrase bondservant. And I understand why, uh, because of the sensibilities of certain people. And yet, throughout the New Testament, we see the word doulos being used. And the most natural, the most honest translation is the word slave. That's why Russ read slave earlier from Titus. 
Because that's the word that we should see. The reason that a lot of people will try to use the word bondservant is to stress the fact that these people were, in fact, servants. But their service was not a matter of choice. They were subject to the will of their masters. In the ancient Near Eastern world, slavery was a very common institution. In fact, in some cities, especially in Rome, you would have had a better chance of meeting a slave than actually meeting a free man. They were absolutely everywhere. They would serve in at least nine different categories of service, and there are approximately seven different ways that a person could become a slave. Let's talk about how a person became a slave in the first place. Slavery often resulted from a failed military campaign. So two armies are battling it out, and the losing army, along with the people that it defended, were typically taken into captivity as prisoners of war, and afterward, they were made to pass under the yoke. It was a symbolic gesture showing that they are now subject to the will of the army and the king, the ruler, that defeated them on the battlefield. It was also possible to become a slave through some form of kidnapping or piracy, what we would call trafficking today. And it would happen in a, ver- in a variety of ways. Raiding parties would invade a, a small and lightly guarded village and they would carry off anything of value, including people who could either be used as slaves or sold on the slave market. The number one most common way that a person became a slave in the ancient Near Eastern world was that they were born to a slave mother. But next to this, kidnapping and being a prisoner of war were at the top of the list. Now, right from the start, understanding a little bit about that history, a little bit about that context, I want us to understand that the common practices for Gentile nations regarding slavery, those things were forbidden by God among his people. I want to point out that slavery through kidnapping, slavery through trafficking, was punishable by death in the Old Testament law. And maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 7, it reads, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. And in this way you shall purge the evil from your midst. God is declaring that the common practice of man-stealing that was taking place all over the ancient Near Eastern world, he declares it to be evil and punishable by death. And then throughout the scripture, we see God condemn those nations that practice this kind of thing. And he often would use Israel and the army of Israel to punish those nations as his arm of justice. It was also forbidden in Israel to mistreat a slave. Because if you even knocked out the tooth of a slave, that slave was to be set free. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 27. And someone might say, well, what if a master beat a slave and no one ever found out about it? Well, that's a good question. And the Old Testament addresses that as well. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16, it says this, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst. In that place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him, you shall not oppress him. Now there's a context here, and the the context, the picture is of a runaway slave who was most likely being mistreated by their master, and God instructs his people through his law to protect them from further mistreatment. 
He has even instructed his people to care for them, to allow them to live wherever, they, wherever it suits them. They were to live as free people at that particular point. One cultural commentator points out, this is a direct contradiction of all existing slave laws of other societies in both ancient and modern times. Slave laws always penalize runaway slaves as well as those who harbored them. So what does this law show us? It assumes that the experience of slavery in Israel was not so harsh that there would be a great number of runaways. In Israel, slaves were considered part of an owner's family. And if they were Hebrew slaves, then they had the right to Sabbath rest and to participate in religious feasts. They were allowed to own possessions. They were even allowed to own slaves themselves. And they could buy themselves out of slavery by by using the wages that they earned in their service to pay their way out. But even if they couldn't buy themselves out of slavery, there was still a mandatory release of slaves every seven years. This was also part of God's law, where all Hebrew debt slaves were set free from the ownership of others. And in Deuteronomy 15, you see that the owner of those freed slaves didn't just let their slave go, didn't just let them go. They were also required by God to give them material assistance. And the implication there is that once you release them, you help them to get on their feet so that they don't end back up in the same place where they, where they were. The Old Testament law governs this practice in a way that is completely foreign to what we see throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. And I hope that you're beginning to see that. That God wanted his people to view this institution in a completely different way than the rest of the world. And, and there's, a, there's a historical context for Israel in this. You can remember, I hope, that Israel themselves, they were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. They knew the harshness of being treated like something less than human. And God didn't want them to forget that, nor did God want them to perpetuate that same injustice because doing so would bring shame on the name of God. God wanted them to remember and not commit the atrocities that were committed against them. He wanted his people to understand the value of human life and human freedom and it's God's word that undermines the foundations of the type of slavery that we've seen throughout the world and throughout history. But at the same time, there's, a, there's a, an understanding of ancient Near Eastern slavery that's quite a bit different than New World slavery. Here's a couple of facts for you. It was common for slaves in the ancient Near Eastern world to be well-educated, even more educated than their masters. Slaves were also known to exercise great power and influence at the insistence of their masters. And you can think about some, some biblical examples of this. Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was sold as a slave, and in his first station, he was shown to have a great aptitude for business. And what does Potiphar do with Joseph? Potiphar makes him the ruler of everything over his entire estate. Because of his acumen, because of his, the, the blessing of God being upon him, he, he was basically second in charge to Potiphar himself. And then later in his life as a slave, when Joseph rose up in Egypt, he became the second most powerful man in the nation of Egypt. Different picture than what we have of antebellum southern slavery. We see almost the same thing happen with Daniel when he became second in power to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, though he too was a slave. 
Now, why am I saying all this? I want you to have some context in your mind, a historical, biblical context in your mind, so that, like me, when I read that word, my mind doesn't automatically jump to something, but it, it shows a better picture, a more accurate historical picture. I also don't want you to get the understanding from me that all ancient Near Eastern slavery was this way. Some of it was absolutely terrible absolutely abusive, oppressive, mistreatment was happening both outside of Israel and yes, mistreatment was happening inside of Israel. Because the nature of man is wicked and any time that that opportunity shows itself, that sin will reach out. But if we are going to rightly understand the history of slavery, then we need to have the full picture. Oh, by the way, speaking of having the full picture, there is another category of slavery that individuals would enter into voluntarily. This was common within the ancient Near Eastern world. It was also common within Israel. And the word that we typically use for this would be, in that day would be slavery, but the word that we would use would be something like indentured servanthood. Have you ever heard that phrase? Much of the language in the Old Testament, especially in Israel, deals with this type of slavery. It had to do with individuals who would enter themselves or their families into what would be contractual servanthood in order to pay their debts and avoid poverty. Because in that day, poverty meant starvation and death. So let me paint a picture, a little bit of an illustration here. Let's say that you're a farmer and you have four children and you went into debt to buy the equipment and the seed and the hired help that you needed in order to, to plant your fields and, and bring a crop uh, to market. But then something went wrong and your entire crop failed. There's no government department of agriculture to bail you out. There's no personal savings that are going to allow you to feed your family, let alone pay your debt back. And so what do you do? Well, one option was to voluntarily enter into an agreement with a more successful landowner nearby. You would make an agreement for you and for your family to work for that landowner for a number of years in return for food and wages and debt protection. And then when those years of service were ended, you could either go free and start over, and the, your, land, your owner at that point, your master at that point, would give you assistance to help you with that, or you would make another agreement for a couple of more years. This was also common in the law. The law stipulates how this is going to look. Some people could become slaves for life in this case. In some cases, that person might do this voluntarily and commit themselves to that family. They were, they were considered part of that family now. That's indentured servanthood. And this type of arrangement was completely different than what most of us have in mind when we read the word slave. That that engagement, that relationship is a lot like an employee-employer relationship that we would understand today, which is why if you read commentaries on passages like this or when, when Paul talks about slavery in Galatians or in Romans or in Colossians, when you read those passages and you read commentaries on this, a lot of pastors and scholars and Bible teachers would read those passages and they would automatically jump to the application of this is a lot like the relationship you have with your boss, an employer-employee relationship. It was just an ancient form of that. But what about the situation? Let's get back into the text. There's a little bit of history, biblical history, ancient Near Eastern history. What about the text? What about these slaves? They are slaves in the city of Ephesus. What is going on in their lives that Paul is addressing here? Paul 
says in verses 1 and 2, let all who are under a yoke, let all who have come under bondage as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And those who have believing masters must not be respectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So these are Christians who are in a position of slavery, and Paul is warning them against doing things that would cause the name of God and the teaching of the gospel to be reviled. By disrespecting their masters, by refusing to serve in that institution faithfully as Christians, their masters saw that Christianity was the source of the problem. Instead of serving faithfully in the name of Christ, they were refusing to serve in the name of Christ. And Paul rebukes them for this. Why? Why were they doing this? One of the reasons why is because through the gospel, these slaves had come to understand that all men have been created equal in the eyes of God. This is a gospel principle that's taught throughout the New Testament. Christian slaves were learning that in Christ, they enjoyed equality of status with other men that was not indicative of their life outside the church. In the culture, slaves were inferior to their masters and other free men, but in the church, they were equally sons of God. And we read about this in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Their identity as Christians took precedent over their identity as slaves. So these Christian slaves in Ephesus were learning these truths. Paul had spent several years in Ephesus teaching them these truths. And these slaves were now seeking to take matters into their own hands so that they could implement this equality that they had been taught. They wanted to be respected by their masters. And who can blame them? They wanted to be set free from their bondage. But the slave masters in the Roman world weren't so willing to accept this new gospel paradigm. New believers were learning that their ultimate identity was as a bond slave of Christ. Like Paul doesn't even shy away from this. He enters into this. And in Romans chapter 6, he helps us understand that we're all slaves. Whether we're free in society or not, we're all slaves. We're either slaves to sin or in Christ, we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. We've been bought with a price. All of that is slave language. The New Testament doesn't shy away from it at all, nor does Paul. We're all equal in the eyes of God. But in Ephesus, these two worlds were colliding. The church and this teaching of equality and the world and this expectation of the ongoing institution of slavery, these things were colliding. And this caused some slaves to stop serving their unbelieving masters. And it caused other slaves to stop serving their Christian masters. And it caused masters to mock the name of Christ because of the actions of their Christian servants. That's what's going on here. Christian slaves had found liberty in Christ. They wanted to throw off their yoke of slavery. They didn't want to show honor or respect to their masters, which would entail their submission and obedience to their daily tasks. And Paul tells them to let their newfound freedom in Christ cause them to serve their masters in an honorable way. Paul calls them to do their work 
in a way that honors their masters and therefore honors the Lord. In other words, well, I'll put it in kind of modern vernacular. The idea of claiming victim status was not as important as your status as a Christian. Those slaves who had Christian masters found themselves in an even more challenging position. You could, you could understand the disconnect between a Christian slave and a, and a non-Christian master, but now you have a, a Christian slave and a Christian master. They were openly disrespecting their masters. That's what Paul says in the text. They were, he uses the same word here that they were disrespecting or looking down on their masters. It's the same word that was used in 1 Timothy 4.12 when the elders or the older people in the church were looking down on Timothy because of his youth. And the way that this sentence is structured indicates that this was already happening. This was what was taking place. And Paul is rebuking these slaves for showing contempt to their masters, to their brothers in Christ. So as believers, both the master and the slave understood the freedom and equality that Christ established. The relationship of master and slave had changed to one of brothers submitting to Christ And Paul wants them to learn to operate within their existing relationship in a way that honors the Lord. Paul tells them that their service is to be that which benefits a brother, that they are called to love. I mean, he says beloved at the end of verse 2. They are believers and they are beloved. You think that's a challenging thing for a slave to hear of their master? I think so. So rather than see themselves as victims... Paul instructs them to be faithful servants of Christ. Because our relationship to Christ causes us to set new parameters around our relationship to others. Even those who treat us unfairly. Jesus calls us to love the Lord, to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. He calls us to bless those who persecute us. There is a long history throughout Scripture of the people of God being mistreated and God wants them to live and serve in such a way that He is their preeminent master and they can bring honor to His name even in the most difficult of circumstances. In other words, the first step going forward is not to work to tear down social institutions. The the first step going forward is not to abandon our Christianity. The first step going forward is a spiritual one to serve with love and respect as unto the Lord. And this is a hard passage because we want other things. The tasks we do in life, whether as a servant or a master or an employee or a boss, The tasks we do have the potential to be acts of worship to the Lord. And Jesus tells us that he cares about the integrity of our lives. He he cares about the sincerity of our hearts. And he knows that whatever we do in this life, whether slave or free, it can be done in a way that brings him glory. This doesn't mean that slavery brings him glory. But it means that we can bring him glory even in the context of something like slavery. Because our primary identity is as a Christian, not as a victim. So what do we do with this? I want to offer a few thoughts. And and I could preach on this for weeks because there's so much here. But I want to offer a few thoughts to help us put some handles on this passage, even though it's a difficult subject to address. 
Number one, Paul made it his aim to preach the gospel to slaves. Paul made it his aim to preach the gospel to slaves. And this might seem like an odd statement, but it reminds us that a person's status in this world is not the most important thing about them. The Roman world treated slaves like animals, like those literally under the yoke. But Paul saw them as men and women who were created in the image of God. Paul saw these slaves as human beings who possessed souls that would never die. And he preached the gospel to them because like the rest of us, they needed a savior. The world saw these people as less than human, but the gospel shows us that they matter to God and they should matter to us. So let's think about how we might apply this. What about those people in our lives, the people that come in and out of our lives that we might be tempted to overlook, that we might be tempted to skip over, people that work jobs that we just simply take for granted, people that work in positions, service-oriented jobs or something like that, that we're tempted to just walk right past them as though their souls don't matter. The gospel reminds us that these people are not defined by their work. Their dignity comes from our Creator. And we can learn from Paul that they matter to God and they should matter to us as well. So those individuals that you you come into contact with throughout the day, throughout the week, that you might be tempted to just ignore because of their status in the world, the gospel says they matter far more than you think to the Lord. Paul preached the gospel to slaves. Number two, there is a way to honor God in all types of work. Paul instructed the slaves in Ephesus to honor the name of God through their work. He wanted them to show honor to their masters as a way to bring glory to God. Whether they were free or not, they could glorify God in their service. So let's think about our own lives. As we think about our work, our means of employment, we need to remember that how we go about it has the potential to bring glory to God or it has the potential to bring shame to the name of God. Whether or not you're on time, whether or not you treat your boss with respect, whether or not you work with integrity, meaning you do your job even when no one's looking over your shoulder. The attitude that you use as you're doing your job has the potential to honor Christ and his name or to dishonor Christ and his name. Another thing is this, I know there's, there's nothing wrong with looking for another job, trying to get yourself in a better position, but as you work your job, are you thankful that in God's providence you're able to work to provide for the needs of your family? There are ways that we can live in all types of manners and bring honor to the glory of God no matter how hard or difficult or undesirable that position might be. And then last, third, Believing in Christ doesn't make all the problems of your life go away. Believing in Christ doesn't make all the problems in your life go away. These first century Christian slaves, they heard the gospel and they believed, but they didn't wake up the next day as free men. They were still caught in an unjust system with a choice to make. How could they seek to bring honor to the name of Christ in the way they served? And it is fair to say that their life didn't get easier when they believed. And this flies in the face of many so-called preachers and teachers today who tell their audiences 
that the only barriers to Christians having what they want in life is the strength of their faith. But the reality of Scripture and history tells us that much of the time believing in Christ, listen to me, it makes life harder. Tell the apostles that they didn't have enough faith as they preached the gospel in the face of their own death. Tell foreign missionaries that they don't have enough faith as they take the gospel into closed countries and face threats from those governments. Tell the 4,998 Christians who were murdered last year for their faith that they didn't have enough faith. What about our brothers and sisters in Haiti who are being exploited by gangs or those pastors in India who are currently being investigated on charges of forced conversions by those infiltrating their churches? You see, that so-called theology just doesn't fly when you compare it to what we see in the Scriptures. Believing in Christ has always come at a cost. It solves the most basic spiritual need that men have, our sinful separation from God, because in Christ our sins are forgiven. In Christ, the guilt of our sins has been paid by His substitutionary death on the cross. In Christ, our souls become anchored to the grace and love of our sovereign God, but the day-to-day lives of those who believe is still subject to the sinful institutions that have been at work in this world for millennia. In one sense, I don't think that the New Testament authors were striving to be social revolutionaries, even though that's what much of our culture is interested in right now. They weren't interested so much in being social revolutionaries. They were trying to change social institutions, but they were trying to change it through the preaching of the gospel. Their mission was to preach the gospel so that the hearts of men could be changed. They were after gospel change, and they understood that when the gospel changed the hearts of men and women in the culture, that the culture would be affected by that. And when we, what we have seen throughout society, especially in relation to this institution of slavery, is that when Christians who've been born again by the power of God, and they understand what the scriptures teach about the equality of mankind, they go into society and they work to bring, through their Christian influence, they work to bring these sinful institutions down. The most ardent opponents of slavery throughout history have been faithful Christians. Where genuine biblical Christianity is embraced, society as a whole has improved, and that includes in the abolition of slavery. And if you've never heard the name William Wilberforce, maybe you should read a little bit about him, who fought for his entire life in Britain to abolish European colonial slavery, and before his death, just before his death, he saw laws passed. An entire life given to bring this down. As sinner saints... The church has often been guilty of great injustice, and our generation is not immune to this. But when the teachings of Christ are rightly embraced, even those wicked seasons have been brought to an end. So brothers and sisters, we we have work to do in our own day and age. And our work is to be faithful to the Scriptures, faithful to the Lord, faithful to promote justice through the preaching of the Gospel and the teaching of the Word of God. And there are still slave institutions. In fact, it is, it is estimated there are more slaves today through child trafficking and sex trafficking than even in the Roman times, which is kind of hard to believe. But the demographics bear it out. So let's understand what the Word of God says. 
And let's do our part to be faithful, to bring glory to the name of God in how we live our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for challenging passages, not because they're challenging and they're a mental exercise, but because they get at our hearts. They expose our hypocrisies. They expose the injustices around us, and they expose your heart of love and care and honor and dignity that should be showed to man. And so, Lord, would you help us to not just toss this idea aside as an intellectual exercise, but understand that we have a role to play in the ending of injustice in our world through our faithfulness to you and the proclamation of the gospel and the discipling of believers. And Lord, help us to be faithful, to honor your name in the way that we live, in the way that we work. Help us not to be those who abide by that cultural fad of desiring victim status. Help us to see our identity in Christ as being the most important thing about us. And help us to live in such a way that we reflect that. So Lord, help us with this. And use us for your sake. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.